0: Hello, welcome to EQ Hacks, the show that offers busy leaders like you bite sized power moves to boost your emotional intelligence. I'm Celine Tio. I'm Agnes Lee, with Stanford trained MBAs and executive coaches coming to you from Silicon Valley, California. Hello, today our special guest is Ed Batista. Ed is a prominent coach in Silicon Valley who works with tech company CEOs and leaders in various fields from investing to law. He's a lecturer at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, teaches a course called The Art of Self-Coaching, which helps professionals be more intentional in managing their growth and development, and also taught interpersonal dynamics, or touchy-feely, the school's most popular elective. It's a rare treat to get to hear from someone as insightful and experienced as Ed. We had such a good chat with Ed that we decided to split our talk with him into two episodes. Today, we are going to focus with Ed on how the impulse to hurry is a signal to slow down and how to notice and catch yourself feeling that desire to hurry, which he has seen executives experience in uncomfortable situations like having to conduct layoffs or report poor results. Get ready, it's time to hear some words of wisdom from today's featured guest, Silicon Valley executive coach Ed Batista, talking with my podcast partner and your host, Agnes Lee.
1: Hi, Ed. I'm so excited that you are our guest in this episode.
2: I I, I cannot say how excited I am because it is just truly a delight to be able to talk with you, especially given how long we've known each other and how much work we've done together in the past. So I was truly um, excited to be asked and delighted to be here.
1: Same here. As I shared, you've been—we've known each other for 20 years. You've been a mentor, my own executive coach, a generous colleague, and it's just a treat to have you here. And I can't wait to know what you're going to share with us. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what mm-hmm. you would like people to know?
2: Yeah. So I am—I'm an executive coach, and that is basically. A- how I spend almost the entirety of my uh, professional time. I launched my coaching practice back in 2006. Later that year, I, I re-engaged with the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, and then in 2007, took on a leadership coaching role there, and, and some years later, became a lecturer. And so these days, I still have a relationship with the business school. I, I only teach uh, a class that I launched in 2015, the Art of Self-Coaching. That's, that's all I do down there at uh, the business school anymore, but I spend 99% of my time working with senior leaders who are facing some sort of challenge in their professional lives, want to be more effective and more fulfilled. So that's my, that, that is my that uh, is my my primary identity, professionally.
1: Great. Thanks for sharing. I'm excited to hear more because of your experience, especially with C-suite leaders and startup founders, really understanding what are things that work well with them in your coaching. We all ask our guests um, this question, if you knew me well, you would know that dot 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 how would you complete that sentence?
2: yeah I thought that was a great question I, and I, I would emphasize the distinction between my, my professional life and my personal life so if you if you knew me well, you would understand that my professional life hasn't really changed that much as a result of the pandemic. My personal life has changed completely it couldn't be more different so my practice was always roughly 25% virtual. I I saw most of my clients in person in downtown San Francisco, but it was fairly easy post pandemic to transform my practice into an entirely virtual practice. And these days I, I see people, I see a lot of people via video. I talk to a lot of people via phone and my work with clients really hasn't changed that much other than the medium through which we're working over the last year. My personal life, it just Has completely changed. So my wife and I moved to San Francisco in 1990, right after college, and we essentially thought we were there for the rest of our lives. A few years ago, we realized ah we're we're interested in spending more time elsewhere, and we began to to travel up to the North Bay a little bit more to Sonoma County, Mendocino County. But we basically assumed that our professional obligations would keep us rooted in San Francisco. And then the pandemic hit, and for a variety of reasons, um, we. to relocate. So we've, we have moved to a farm in the sort of far northwest corner of Marin County. Where it's it's a very much a working farm. There's a working sheep operation and a cattle operation here. We are not responsible for the sheep or the cattle. Those are taken care of by other people. But I live in a farmhouse in the middle of a set of pastures. And my wife grew up on a farm. So this is a very, it's a very familiar experience to her. It's a very unfamiliar experience for me. I I am I'm still in the process of figuring out, oh, who am I living on this farm out in the distant countryside? It's a very rewarding experience, but it's also been a, a very surprising and unexpected experience. If you told me pre-pandemic that I'd be living on a farm, I would have said, no way. There's no way that's possibly happening. And yet, here I am.
1: Yeah, I always envision you as the San Francisco man. <laughs> so <laughs> to live you in, in a farm is a different picture, but I love it. It sounds very idyllic, and I guess one of the benefits of working remotely, being able to do that and well, make a dream a, happen, yeah,
2: that's what makes it possible, and it also. It feels like it's allowed me to be, to be very focused. I mean, my life has always been fundamentally organized around being able to show up and be in the best state of mind and body to, to work with my clients. And actually living out here allows me to manage that even more effectively, just not having to, not having to commute, not having to navigate through downtown San Francisco. And so it's actually, it, in many ways, it's been quite a learning experience. Like what are the conditions that allow me, that, that enable me to do my best work? And I'm also just learning a ton about living on a farm. It's, it's been quite a surprise.
1: <laughs> I imagine. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what is a concept or framework, an idea that around emotional intelligence that has worked for you and your clients?
2: Sure. Sure. So I think of this as a, something of a mantra, uh, that I believe has a couple of different components that we can you know, talk further about. But the, the overarching mantra is this idea that the impulse to hurry is a signal to slow down. Mm. Uh, and that's not necessarily true 100% of the time under all circumstances, but what I've certainly observed in my work with you know, every one of my clients at various times and, and many, many times in my own life that particularly under stressful conditions, we can find ourselves triggered in a certain way that, you know, leaves us feeling behind and we've got to catch up, we've got to hurry. And so often uh, that's mistaken. That's that's not that that's not an accurate perception of what's happening around us and what we need to do as a result and that is often when we tend to make mistakes we tend to rush through something we and uh, as a consequence make a cognitive error we tend to uh, speak vociferously or with a lot of emphasis and we miss emotional cues or we send emotional signals that we don't intend to send we 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 just try to get something off our plates or check something off the to-do list and realize oh that was actually counterproductive i didn't need to do it now and and so i've uh, spent a lot of time working on myself but also with clients to first retrain ourselves to recognize oh this this impulse to hurry is so often a mistaken signal so rather than giving into it rather than feeling under the influence of that impulse can i actually retrain my response and and allow a little light bulb to go off and say oh i'm feeling the need to hurry that's a signal to slow down. And of course, there's a lot of work that goes into this. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's absolutely not just a, an intellectual process. It's not like the mere awareness of this is going to translate automatically into action, but that's a starting point.
1: Well, I mean, it seems, it is so relevant. I mean, I, I relate personally to that, mm-hmm. to that sense yep, yep. of wanting to hurry mm-hmm. and having to catch myself trying to actually slow down. And as, as you mentioned, kind of really challenging the assumption that you have, that we're behind, right? That we Mm -hmm, have to catch mm -hmm, up. mm -hmm. And you mentioned like, it's not just an intellectual exercise. You have to be conscious about how to make it happen. And so what would be some tips to kind of catch yourself and then find ways to challenge the assumption, but also slow down?
2: You bet. So I think of it in sort of, there are kind of three buckets. In a, in a broader sense, we can expand our self-awareness
1: mm-hmm. and,
2: and understand the conditions under which we're likely to feel this sense of, of hurriedness, where we're likely to feel triggered that way. We can also bear in mind some very specific tactics to, to employ in the moment. And over time, we have to build our capacity for emotion regulation. That's really the kind of the the foundational practice that allows us to even recognize, Ooh, this, this feeling, this, this emotion of needing to hurry is something that I can regulate. I don't just have to give into it. This sense of increasing our self-awareness, part of that is just understanding, well, what are the conditions under which I'm likely to feel like what? In some cases, it's talking with a particular person, somebody kind of escalates our sense of anxiety or urgency. In other cases, it's at certain times of day or certain days in the week, there are just certain moments and certain settings under which our um, a tendency to feel rushed is going to get triggered. It's also uh, helpful to understand what are our unique physiological responses emotions are physiological events before they register in consciousness something happens we encounter a scenario or a situation and neurotransmitters are are released at our brain and have a sort of a cascading series of effects on our bodies which influence the registering of a conscious emotion and so in a lot of circumstances we can sort of sense something we can feel something physiologically quite literally and if we can uh, train ourselves to recognize, oh, that's my tell. That's my physiological sign that, that I have this sense of urgency and I'm rushing that. Can I just feel my body a little bit more clearly? Or, Can we make ourselves more aware of, of cognitive biases? We all have different ways of thinking that are not entirely accurate. We're all subject to, to, to different cognitive biases and just recognizing what are, our per- what are, what are the ones that affect us personally? Most literally, there's one, the the psychologist Daniel Kahneman talks about the fact in his great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about the fact that we're actually very bad at envisioning what, what he calls missing data. We we tend to assess a situation or a scenario, and we extract a very, very small number of data points. And then we construct an explanatory narrative to to explain to ourselves what is happening in this scenario, to make meaning of it. And we do that almost instantaneously. And what we fail to do habitually is stop, slow down, and recognize, oh, there's probably a bunch of additional data that I don't have that might explain the situation differently or the data that i do have may be quite suspect it may not be all that accurate i mean you know a classic example is when we don't get a response from somebody We send a message to somebody via some channel and they don't get back to us under in a time frame that feels desirable to us. And so we immediately start to construct the story to explain this. And typically those explanatory narratives are negative and self-protective. So we often make a bunch of negative assumptions that this person is not getting back to us in a a time frame that feels reasonable because a whole host of negative and self-protective reasons. And yet what we fail to do is stop and say, well, what's the missing data here? What's the data that might explain this situation in a whole different way? Who knows? Maybe they're offline or they're unavailable or they're sick or something much more important or even tragic has occurred in their lives. It doesn't occur to us to kind of challenge that narrative. That's a type of cognitive bias that we can be more aware of. Also, though, in the moment, there are certain immediate tactics that we can employ to slow ourselves down. One is known as reframing, what psychologists call cognitive reappraisal, that the, the, the set of assumptions that we are bringing to a a given scenario and a given uh, set of circumstances are gonna deeply inform our emotional response to that set of circumstances. It's very much connected to the cognitive bias that I just mentioned. So if we can be a little bit more aware of the the assumptions that we're bringing to a a given interaction, to a given scenario, to a given situation, uh, we can then challenge those. We can say, hey, those, those aren't necessarily accurate. Let me surface and illustrate the story that I'm telling myself to explain this circumstance And conceivably reframe it, tell myself a different story to understand what's, what might be going on here. Very much related to this though, is simply talking about our feelings. In fact, it's a lot harder if we say we have to do all of this work ourselves internally alone. If we're able to surface some of these feelings, especially around a, a feeling of being rushed, a feeling of having some anxiety or a sense of urgency, that makes it a lot easier for us to manage those feelings and and slow ourselves down in the process and that won't happen automatically it requires first our ability to access these emotions label them and and feel comfortable sharing them with other people it also requires a culture um, in which it is okay to talk about your feelings and yet you know what we know from actually a host of social psychology and neuroscience research is that talking about our feelings is a very reliable way to manage those feelings much more effectively i mean occasionally we we are able to kind of hit pause in an interaction take a deep breath, go for a walk around the block. But in many circumstances, we can't do that. We can't necessarily, you know, leave the meeting or, or leave the conversation in which we're feeling this sense of urgency. And so just being able to, to verbalize that and share those feelings with another person, with the people uh, who are present with us can be a reliable way to manage those feelings. And the last thing I'll I'll say is that over time, we've got to build our capacity for emotion regulation. And and there are some just foundational um, uh, practices that enable us to do this.
0: That was executive coach Ed Batista talking with Agnes Lee about slowing down for a more intentional response. In the next episode, the conversation with Ed continues, where he tells us about an acronym he uses to help executives build the capacity to respond intentionally to strong emotions. You can find Ed at his website, Batista.com and on Twitter. We'll put these links to Ed in the show notes.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of EQ Hacks, the show for busy leaders who want to be emotional Jedi. For more ways to elevate your leadership, sign up for
0: our email list at eqhacks.co and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.